0: Welcome back to The Perfect Puzzle. We are talking about the crucifixion in this series. It's, uh, this is the second one of two talks that we are going to have on the crucifixion. We may have more. It is Lent. It is a Lenten season. It is a time for reflection. It is the time to consider our lives and to consider our lives in relation to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us on that cross and what he accomplished for us with his resurrection uh so we'll begin again with a word of prayer lord this is a study that's been difficult for me to do it's been difficult but i do believe father it's a a study that you want your children to know about that you want your children to hear and i ask you father to help me through the assistance and power of your holy spirit to deliver it in the loving manner that you intended it to be delivered father as I believe it. I ask you father to open our hearts, mind, soul, body and spirit to your word and to things you have to tell us. Have you ever given God a reason to be angry with you? Have you ever been so steeped in sin that you tried to hide your face from his? Convinced that his wrath was just about ready to come down on you? You know, let's compare your sins with the sins of Israel. As you read through the Old Testament, you're going to discover a truth that seems to shock most people. Because at no time in Israel's history did they ever remain faithful to God. You know, there were periods of collective obedience when they honored God with their words and actions. And he always blessed them for it. But as soon as the blessings flowed, their hearts wandered. And then once again, they fell into their evil ways. Their lives were steeped in a constant pattern of rebellion and unfaithful living. Ezekiel tells us about one of the many times God responded to Israel's unfaithfulness. God says to them in Ezekiel chapter 20, In this also your father blasphemed me by forsaking me. You continue to defile yourselves with all your idols to this day. You say we want to be like the nations, like the peoples of the world who serve wood and stone, as I judged your fathers in the desert of the land of Egypt. So I will judge you, declares the Sovereign Lord. You know, Once again, Israel had provoked the wrath of God, and now they sat awaiting his judgment. If there was ever a time that Israel deserved to be wiped from the face of the planet, it was that moment. And in spite of all he had done for them, they continued to rebel, and now their sentence was at hand. You need to hold on to your chairs, because here comes the gavel. Ezekiel 20, verse 44. You will know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, and not according to your evil ways and your corrupt practices. What is God's name? Redeemer, Deliverer. Savior. What is the judgment he hands down? He plans to redeem them again. You will know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, the land I had sworn with uplifted hand to give to your fathers. Ezekiel 20 verse 42. God's judgment on Israel is to once again bring them back home. You know, he deals with them according to his goodness, not their evil. He forgives them. Not because they deserve it, but because it is God's nature to forgive. Do you ever think, do you think your sins could cause God to turn his back on you? You know, you haven't felt love and acceptance until you've disappointed God. But because God has dealt with it in such a substantial, costly way, a sufficient sacrifice and a full atonement has been made for sin and a satisfactory basis for forgiveness and redemption was firmly established on the cross. That antidote that I talked about in the last session and the poison truly counteracts the effect of that deadly poison of sin and cleanses us from the the infection. Because of what God has done, we can be confident that through faith in His blood we have been forgiven, cleansed, and restored to fellowship with God. Our sins, as horrible and heinous as they are, have been removed from us as far as the East is from the West. That's Psalm one o three twelve. The cross is the most clear and profound revelation of the gravity of sin and the extent to which God, in holy love, is willing to go in providing a way of atonement. As rebellious sinners, we were there at the cross, pounding in the nails, shouting, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Yet coming to terms with who we are and acknowledging what we have done is crucial if we grasp the depth of what, through the cross, God has done for us in Christ. You know, it's like the African-American spiritual. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? You know, the answer to that is yes, we were all there, and then it, sometimes it causes me to tremble, 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 and in the light of what we as sinners have done and what holy love has done in response, how can we not tremble? Often in the past, we focused so exclusively on how the cross addresses the problem of human sin that we failed to help the people listening to us grasp how profoundly it addresses the problem of human suffering. You know, for some, that problem is primarily philosophical. It's intellectual. How can a good and righteous God allow so much suffering, particularly unjust suffering, in this world? Is a God, who lets the innocent suffer and permits senseless death, worthy to be called God at all? At all times and in all places, people have wrestled with those questions. Yet in the world we live in today, those questions have become even more acute. We live in a world of torture, violence, natural disasters, terrorism, genocide, famine, mass starvation, civil wars, and the proliferation of nuclear weapons. It's the world of television, the internet, there's a 24-7 news cycle that constantly puts those things right in front of our eyes. As a result, you know we truly have to bury our heads in the sand not to feel the force of the problem. For many unbelievers, the magnitude of unjust suffering in the world today has become the cornerstone in their wall of unbelief. But it's not only unbelievers who wrestle with this problem. Many believers do too, even though they may be more hesitant to talk about it. For others, however, the problem of suffering is more personal and more experiential. It's not the unjust suffering in the world that troubles them as much as the unjust suffering they've experienced in their own lives. Deep within them, there's a raging angry voice that cries out, God, this isn't fair and it's not right. What did I do to deserve this? So how then does the cross address the problem of suffering? What is the message of the cross that we're called to proclaim for the sufferer? First of all, the cross tells us in no uncertain terms that God in Christ is one with us in our suffering. The prophet Isaiah, in describing the future servant Messiah, calls him a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. That's Isaiah 53.3. He's someone who would know pain and suffering firsthand. You know, when we suffer, God doesn't stand far off, aloof, unable, or unwilling to get involved. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, who identifies fully with the human condition. At the cross, particularly in relation to human suffering, the meaning of Emmanuel is fully and finally disclosed. There, he personally experienced human suffering in all its ranges. The events surrounding the cross portray every variety of human suffering and evil. On the cross, Jesus suffered injustice, felt the shame of nakedness, was deprived of his rights, endured taunting, became the focus of the rage of others and was rejected and forgotten and forsaken. He experienced excruciating physical pain, thirst, hunger, emptiness, torment, confusion, and finally, even death itself. Having personally experienced such breadth and depth of human suffering, Jesus can truly identify us when we suffer he is a fellow, fellow sufferer who understands. Because Christ learned obedience from the things he suffered according to Hebrews 5.8 he can empathetically identify with us in our anguish. anguish. That is the first part of the message of the cross we need to proclaim to a suffering and dying world and to hurting people. You know, it doesn't make our own personal suffering disappear nor does it solve the age-old enigma of suffering, but it does enable us to keep trusting God even in the presence of the inexplicable. You know, no matter what happens, nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from His love. You know, I could, myself, I could never believe in God if it weren't for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? At the cross, he laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings became more manageable in light of this. You know, there's still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, we boldly snap another mark. The mark of the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. But not only does the cross tell us that God is one with us in suffering, it also tells us that God uses suffering in redeeming his fallen creation. God's solution to the problem of suffering is not to eliminate it. It's not to insulate himself from it, but he participates in it. And having participated in it, to transform it into his instrument for redeeming the world. The cross tells us that God can use suffering. He weaves it into his redemptive plan and pattern for the salvation of the world and for our salvation too. He takes the terrible tragedy of the cross and turns it into a triumph. What is grotesque becomes glorious. What is evil is transmuted into what is good. God took all the awful elements of that event, the diabolical evil, the flagrant injustice, the excruciating pain, he mixed them all together, and through his divine alchemy, if you want to put it that way, transformed them into his divine medication for the healing of the nations. You know, the cross is a supreme illustration of Romans 8:28, which every Christian knows, that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. You know, it proves that even when things seem to have gone tragically wrong, God can still use anguish creatively to bring out of it blessings that could not have been realized any other way. You know, in fact, that's God's method. That's how God, in the face of evil, works to accomplish His will and His purpose in the world. How does God overcome that which opposes His will? How does God demonstrate His sovereignty and power in the face of evil? Evil? The cross proclaims it is through a power that absorbs the opposition to His will through innocent suffering. Then having absorbed it, God neutralized it by forgiving love. And finally, having neutralized evil, God uses it to accomplish his very purpose it was originally trying to thwart. Through the cross, God overcomes evil. Doesn't do it through brute strength. Doesn't do it through coercion or manipulation. Or through a dazzling display of force. But through the power of suffering love. God uses suffering redemptively to accomplish his will and his purpose in the world and in our lives. The cross speaks volumes to to us about the problem of human suffering. It tells us in no uncertain terms that God is one with us in our suffering, and it demonstrates God can use suffering redemptively in accomplishing his purposes for us. There will always be those wrestling with issues related to past or present suffering in, in their lives. Others will be struggling to understand the extent of unjust suffering and tragedy in our fallen world. How lovely, then, are the feet of those preachers who proclaim this good news, this message of the cross for the sufferer. That's Isaiah 52.7 and Romans 10.15. God is love. 1 John 4.8 You know, we've heard it quoted so often that for Christians, it's become an unquestioned belief, along with God so loved the world from John 3.16. Well, if there is a God, how can that God not be love? Yet, when God first penned those words, the conviction that God is love was far from self-evident. The non-Christian religions of John's day had deified every quality except self-giving love. The only deity missing from the world's pantheon of God's was the God who is love. Now, As Christians today, we tend to take it for granted. Well, doesn't everybody think God is love? Yet, what was true in John's day is still true today. And that is that no other major religion in the world proclaims that God is love. In Islam, for example, Allah can choose to act lovingly, that's not what Allah is. Love is not his essential nature. Only the Christian religion makes such a bold, audacious claim. And what's more, it stakes that claim on an historical event, which is Christ's death on the cross. This is how we know that God is love, says John. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins, First John 4.10. In the apostles' mind, the two are inextricably bound up together. The love of God and Christ's death on the cross, they're bound together. In fact, if you dispense with Christ's death, you lose God's love. You know, we need to proclaim the close connection between the cross and the love of God. In a world of inexplicable evil, suffering, and tragedy, a world that often calls divine love into question, our best response is to point to the cross and tell people there on a day in history on a hill outside the city of Jerusalem the incarnate Son of God was crucified for us that's how we know with certainty that God is love and while the cross is the supreme evidence that God is love it's also clearest revelation of the nature of divine love God is love yes and the cross is proof demonstration of it but what kind of love is it the cross also tells us that there's a lot to proclaim here but I'm just going to consider three characteristics of God's love the first one is the cross tells of the extensive nature of God's love Paul underscores this when he states that God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners Romans 5 8 It wasn't while we were at our religious best, sincerely seeking after God, that Christ died for us. While we were sinners who were, as as I've described above, sworn enemies of God, out-and-out rebels, defiant creatures hell-bent on annihilating our Creator, that's when He died for us. While we were at our absolute worst, God then loved us the most. And that's how extensive God's love is for us. The cross proves that no one, no matter how wicked, depraved, and reprobate they are, no one is beyond the scope of Calvary's love. Christ died for us all because God loves God's love extends to all. Number two, the cross tells of the expensive nature of God's love. Our understanding of the love of God can very easily Degenerate into sentimentalism, or what you know, some I've heard it aptly called in circles, sloppy agape. In an age that prizes tolerance to a fault, it's easy to project our extreme understandings of tolerance onto God. We therefore assume that a God of love will tolerate sin and forgive it without difficulty or cost. God's love is not sentimental. It's an intensely holy love. God does not tolerate or casually ignore the rupture in the divine-human relationship caused by sin. He deals with our sinful rebellion and wicked defiance with the utmost seriousness. You know, forgiveness is free, but it's certainly not cheap. The words of John that I quoted, which stress that the cross is the supreme proof that God is love, also underscores the costly nature of that love. God loved us, he says, and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. That's 1 John 4.10. Now, the Greek word, helestiron, translated here as sacrifice, and in other versions as atoning sacrifice, propitiation, or expiation, is drawn from the Old Testament sacrificial system. New Testament scholars and theologians continue to debate about its precise meaning. Does it have to do with averting divine wrath, which is propitiation, or annulling human guilt, which is expiation, or is it a combination of both? And I'm not going to answer that question. But this word, given its close association with sacrifice, certainly underscores the costliness of divine love. In making atonement for sin, God does not look the other way or sidestep holiness, but in holy love, God himself as he did with Abraham on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22-8 provides the sacrificial lamb third thing is the cross tells of the exemplary nature of God's love now the New Testament writers stress that third characteristic of God's love since God loved us that much says John in reference to the love demonstrated on the cross we surely ought to love each other that's 1st John 4:11. The love revealed at the cross provides the example, the pattern and the impetus for our loving others. That's why Paul urges the Ephesians, live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us. That's Ephesians 5.2. First and foremost, that includes those who are brothers and sisters in Christ in the Christian community, which we call the church. So Paul, having urged Philippian believers to make him truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one heart and purpose in Philippians 2.2, then proceeds to remind them of Christ's example, Christ who made himself nothing, who humbled himself, even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. That's in Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8. But such love must also extend to those outside the household of faith, even to those who are persecuting us for our faith. As Peter exhorts his fellow Christians, many of whom were being mistreated on account of their faith, Christ, who suffered for you, is your example. Follow in his steps. That's 1st Peter 2:21. You know, we must proclaim the cross, not only as a demonstration of divine love, but as the pattern and example for us. It not only tells us what God's love looks like, but it also tells us what our love our love should look like. His love was sacrificial, self-giving and status renouncing. Ours must be the same. And we're going to wrap up this session This has been the perfect puzzle. Father, thank you for this opportunity. We've had to learn a little more about you, about your son, and the incredible cost the salvation of us, your people, was to you. We thank you, Lord, for enduring that cost. And we ask you, Lord, to continue guiding our lives every day every minute, every second, every hour, every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Until next time, this has been The Perfect Puzzle.